Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothlein, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Jesper Dalbeck. The veteran Swedish producer sat down with Aaron Kultate, our news editor, in London recently to chat about his alias, The Persuader, which he recently dusted off after a 16-year hiatus for a new album. There's loads of history here. Jesper and Aaron cover the Love Parade and the cult label Spec, and artists like Adam Bayer, Carrie Lakebush, and Tiga all make cameos in the narrative. You can sense that Dalbeck is as surprised as anyone else by how much ground he's covered over the course of his decades-long career. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. Jesper Dalbeck, up next on The Exchange. album you revived the persuader alias after a 16 year break uh, tell me how that came to be yeah it's a pretty funny story um, there was um, a couple of guys from Paris who uh, had this Sunday parties uh, called concrete and uh, they wanted to book me to play for one of their parties um, but they wanted me to play as the Persuader, which is an old alias that I used a long time ago. And uh, first I thought the idea was pretty horrible, actually. Uh, but then after a while it kind of sunk in that it, it was actually a pretty interesting idea to sort of revive that project again. So um, I went there and played and, and, uh, and also um, I, I gave them a record and it was released as The Persuader on, on Concrete, the label. And then I started to do more and more music and uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a good decision because a lot of um, good music came out of that. Like lots of good inspiration from, from the past together with the, with the present sort of. And why do you think your initial response to that request was one of, you know, you, you, you say you thought it was a horrible idea at first. Why, why do you think that was? Well, I mean, I'm not so keen to maybe revive everything I've done. And, and, and uh, also when you, when you sort of close a chapter on one project, uh, it's sometimes kind of awkward to open it again. It's sort of uh, you start to write an alternative ending to the book, sort of. So you had considered the Persuader chapter close. For me, it was closed, but um, but then uh, 
I was actually persuaded by my agent, <laughs> and when I started to do mu the music, uh, it felt very natural. So that was good. So going back into the studio to record as the Persuader, how did you go about making it a Persuader record and not a Jesper Dahlbeck record or a record under another one of your aliases? Well, it's a little bit about also the, I guess, the studio technology that I used at the time. It's now kind of also making its way back to the studio, but with new technical possibilities, obviously, that makes things that was quite hard to to do in the 90s quite easy now actually so the recording process was very fast but i used kind of like my old way of you know working in the studio with old equipment and old uh, glitchy synthesizers and stuff like that but i i could use the computer now and really you know edit out what I wanted to use in the end. So that was the big improvement. So kind of, the, I guess, getting the best of both worlds. Exactly. Um, the Persuader alias, well, the name of the alias is, seems to be a nod to, to Roger Moore. You're, you're a fan of Roger? Well, at uh, the beginning of the 90s, they aired, um, first they aired The Persuaders with Roger Moore and Tony Curtis. And it had an awesome uh, theme. It's sort of a Moog style uh, intro. And um, then also they, they aired on Swedish TV, uh, The Saint, which is also Roger Moore. And um, I, I just kind of liked the whole atmosphere of the, of the, of the show, you know. And then for some weird, uh, weird reasons, I made the, um, a modeling job for a shoe company, some really awful shoes. And um, it was kind of a lousy payment, but part of the payment was a rather nice print of me uh, listening to a watch in this kind of like, you know, English uh, jacket or something. So we took that picture and put on, on one of the of first uh, Persuader records. And, uh, I mean, the only text that was on there was just, what's the time is the Templar? Well, no track names or nothing. I wanted to ask you about that, that sleeve actually, cause it's kind of, kind of awesome. Yeah. For, for the new album that I did now, um, I actually did a kind of reactment of the old picture. So I, I found almost the same, uh, gear and we tried to imitate the picture and but this time instead of looking down i'm actually looking into the camera and and the album itself is is named after what well, it gets inspiration from the stockholm archipelago yeah tell me a bit about that and in terms of like your obviously you've lived in stockholm or near stockholm for for a very long time and how that's kind of fed into to what you're making musically yeah it's um it's a kind of um special environment uh, it's just outside the city of stockholm it's it's kind of like um, um a big area of just small islands and uh, some of them are a little bit bigger and have people living on them some of them are a bit smaller with maybe just one house and but mostly it's just like 
small uh, uh, you know stones almost you know peeking through the the water line the further out you come towards the ocean the smaller these like uh, stones become i don't know what they're called in english but almost like a reef you know but they're made out of stone so um when i was looking for uh for names for the album i was actually looking at this like maritime map with names for the different areas and these kind of like old um, names really uh, in Swedish it's really weird and like poetic and but sometimes it's poetic and you you also get from the name the understanding that you shouldn't go there because you're gonna damage your boat you know so there's all these like meanings in these uh, track names. And I've spent a lot of time there as a child and, and also as a grown-up. So it, it um, felt natural to pay a bit of tribute to, to the archipelago after I, I named uh, the first album after my hometown, Stockholm. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you've had so many different aliases and projects, of course, down the years. What do you think it was about the Persuader that appealed to people and, you know, the, the Concrete Crew in 2015? Well, I mean, music always goes somewhat circular and uh, kind of like tides, you know. Um, I guess now that sound that we... Uh, put out on on Svek the label at that time in in the mid 90s uh, is now again kind of popular, but uh, I, I guess we were also lucky that we also found a particular sound that was kind of like uh, timeless in a way. So, I mean, most of the music it's not really timeless. It, it, you can really hear that it belongs to a certain era. But sometimes you, you just do a record that seems to be valid for, you know, like this obviously has been popular for 15 years or so. So that was a good one. And you've been playing live as, as the Persuader um, a bit recently. How have you found, you know, the, the, the crowd reacting to those performances? Yeah, it's interesting because it's actually, um, um, I mean, it's an honor to first have produced a new album with all new songs and to get to play them live in front of an audience is really uh, cool and uh, to see the, the reaction and to be able to also change the songs while you play them to fit the, the mood of the party or the, the concert. So that's kind of like next level DJing in a way. Does the live show comprise just material from the new album or are you uh, throwing in kind of older Persuader material as well? This, this, uh, this live set is, uh, I'd say, 95% new material and a little surprise too. And you, you mentioned uh, Svek, which is kind of like a bit of a legendary uh, cult label. Can you tell me about how you first met 
uh, Stefan, who started the label, I believe. Um, yeah, so let me have a think. Um, because I, I was working in a record shop together with um, Adam Bayer, actually, uh, in the mid-90s. And um, we were selling techno records and um, a little bit of house. And one day this guy, Stefan, came into the record shop and um, started to talk with us. And um, I mean, we became friends and uh, he wanted to, to do a label that was kind of different from this hard pounding techno that was going on at the moment and go back to more like I guess techno but in a house tempo and uh, we took a lot of inspiration from you know labels like Compact in Germany or and so on and uh, we tried to do our own style with um, this kind of uh, dubby techno house undefined style, I guess. And Stefan played on the, the steel drums in that uh, Chaos record, is that right, what he did with you? No, that was actually uh, a guy we found in the subway. So he came in and uh, didn't say much, but he just played on the on the steel drum. And at that time, there was no hard disk recording, so everything had to be done in one take. What was that session like? Weird. <laughs> <laughs> and so from getting to know Stefan, how um, involved did you become with, with Svek? Obviously, you, you put out quite a few records on the label. Were you also sort of... Ha did you have anything to do with the day-to-day -day running of things? Well, he was the... Uh, the main guy running the label and uh, but we ended up working quite much together and I also co-produced uh, his records and I I wrote also a lot of other uh, records with other people I had some different projects on on the Svek label so I guess I was probably involved in about half of the catalog in the end and why did it um sort of come to a close around around 2001 um i guess i mean someone's probably gonna write a book about it but um prior to sort of the millennium um vinyl business was quite good and then i guess with the introduction of of mp3s and downloads and all this stuff um, a lot of distributors started to go bankrupt and uh, it just didn't seem to be you know working out the same way as it did just five six years before that and also there was some distributors owing money and it was just not a good situation a lot of labels really were hit by that and didn't didn't survive. Um, even the ones that did survive seemed to sort of really struggle through those years. So it was like you, you know, almost overnight, Svek Records that just weren't selling as many as many copies. Yeah, I think it 
the there was maybe the the second of the or the third distributor that went uh, bankrupt and that was kind of like the nail in the coffin you know and stefan lost uh, interest in in trying to put out new records and i mean you, you mentioned the kind of circular nature of of music a lot of those fec records now fetch a, a fairly tidy um, amount of money on discogs for example so mm. I guess it could be, would, would it be something that's ever, are you still in touch with Stefan and would you ever consider like restarting that or reissuing any of those records? I don't think that um, it would be um, an economically feasible to repress all those records again. And I think it would just, you know, piss off all the collectors anyway. So I think... Uh, I think we we probably leave, you know, the records where they are. And I, I want to sort of uh, take things back a bit. I mean, you, you come from a, a very musical family and upbringing, um, grandfather, father, uncle, all musicians. Uh, what was it like growing up in, in that environment and, and how did you end up getting involved with club music? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I thought that I was going to become some sort of um, engineer or... Uh, work with uh, computers or rockets or something. And um, I was actually in school all the way up to... I was about 16, 17 years old, I think. And I started to hear uh, hip-hop and kind of, you know, Belgian new beat and... uh, all this new sort of um, music coming out on on our only small radio channel that we had in Stockholm at that time. And uh, I guess sooner or later I started to dream about having my own equipment, studio equipment, and uh, getting uh, a computer which would then be like an Atari, which could control synthesizers and drum machines and so on. And um, because you had to buy all the all the equipment if you were to record anything, even to cassette, you, you still needed so much, much equipment. And then um, later on, I, um, I started to go to the early rave parties that... that um, was held in in Stockholm in the early 90s and uh, around 93 I met some other Swedish people among them uh, Adam Bayer and we got together as a small group of friends and actually went um, to uh, Berlin to the love parade and uh, just uh, seeped in all the the atmosphere that was going on at that time. And on the train down to Berlin, we actually started planning who was going to buy which machine and so on, so that when we came back to Stockholm after the weekend, we were all pretty tired, but we just started to try and and pull together this studio, uh, me, Adam, and, and Peter Benish, uh, another guy. And uh, 
I think a few months later we we had our first studio in in Peter's mom's basement, and we started to do records from there. So tell me what your experience was like at at the Love Parade in in 1993. First of all, it was overwhelming. the The whole party thing was. Uh, pretty crazy with all these trucks going up and down on Kurfürsten Dam with people dancing and uh, it was quite different from from Sweden we were not so like uh, open in this way in in the, in the 90s and um, but then also the whole atmosphere of running small record labels and actually doing uh, music and putting it out on your own label and getting it distributed and played by other DJs and seeing that it was actually possible. That was a, a, a very good inspiration to actually go back up to Stockholm again and, and then start the studio and, and be determined that we, we're going to have our records played at the Love Parade next year, 94. Which they actually were then. Also, we actually had two records, I think, that was played at least once. <laughs> the following year. Yes. So you you, you very much achieved that goal. Um, that must have been a, a wonderful feeling. Yeah, I think that was uh, probably the reason why also we kept on working with music and and has been doing that now uh, since you know the the beginning of the nineties. Um, because we had that that really nice experience the first year. And in terms of coming back from the Love Parade, setting up a studio and, and you know, and making music, as you kind of got, got into the groove doing that, was there a bit of a, an actual party scene coming up in Stockholm that revolved around that? Were, you know, were, were there raves happening that you were attending or playing at? Yeah, in the beginning of the 90s, like around... 1991 uh, there was the first wave of kind of like illegal ray parties and um, you had to call a, a phone line with an answering machine that was going through all the, the the party information and usually they had all the boring stuff first so so that you had to pay for five minutes at least and then came you know, the address for a bus or something to go to a warehouse somewhere. And um, that's how, for instance, we met also Kerry uh, Lekebush, another Swedish techno producer. And uh, it was kind of also thanks to him that that um, we also got the, the knowledge about the, the studio technology and equipment and how to connect cables with the equipment to actually get it to work. How long after that did you um, actually set up Globe Studios with, with Peter and Adam? Yeah, Globe Studios opened, I think, on the 1st of September or something like that. Okay, in... 93. 93. So in terms of where the location of, of that of Globe Studio has been, has it where has it moved down the years? Actually, we're in the same spot. And um, it's kind of fun and scary at the same time that I'm actually, 
you know, 40 years old now and sitting in almost the same room as I started doing this, you know. Um, so the studio is actually 22 years old this summer. And uh, we'll see how many years we go, we go on for. And tell me about what, it, what it's like in there. Well, now it's, um, we have uh, the whole basement. So it's actually made up of, I think, eight rooms. And um, so there's a bunch of people there. Um, my cousin John uh, has one room. There's another guy called Albin Myers. And uh, there's another Swedish guy called Ty Stripes. Um, and another young Swedish techno producer called Nima Kak. And uh, a couple of other guys as well. So... We're kind of like an office, really, that goes to lunch uh, at the same time. And, yeah, it's very good. I mean, um, back around that time, you know, it wasn't too long after the studio opened that you were, you were also working in um, in Planet Rhythm. You also p uh, put out records on their label. Who, who was running that? That was a guy called uh, Glenn Wilson who um, came to Sweden also in the beginning of the 90s. And started uh, first a mail order for records, and uh, later he moved to Stockholm and opened a record shop. And uh, then he hired me and uh, Adam Bayer, and also Alexi Delano, who lives here now in London, by the way. So we were kind of working there, all of us, um, nicking all the good records. <laughs> that came up from, from England and Germany. And um, there was also the uh, label, Plant Rhythm. And Kerry Lickebush actually had his studio in the basement. And he was also running his own label called Hybrid. So that was also uh, a nice little unit there with labels and producers and records and everything. Obviously, having access to, to all the latest records is um, hugely important, especially in a kind of pre-internet era. Were you also kind of uh, interacting with customers coming into the shop who were kind of on the same wavelength as you musically? Yeah, there was um, a lot of uh, actually um, young people with very little money coming in to listen to the records we had in, in the stock. Uh, we knew that they didn't have so much money or no money, money at all, actually. But it was also interesting to see how important it was for them to also see and, and feel the records that, that they heard over at the parties, the techno parties, or, or just when the uh, sort of internet phenomena started with with dj mixes that was distributed on on the internet and and so on so we actually for, for a while we had a big crate that took the whole you know um half of the store was just tucked away records for guys who wanted them so badly but they didn't have the money so we had to pull them out, and um, but it was it was uh, a very interesting 
time to work there and to to see how other people reacted to to the music because we had our own um sort of journey to the to to the music and um that was kind of the first time that I I really started to interact with other people as well who had the similar uh fanatic interest in techno and and uh, the the machines you know the the classic Roland stuff and all this the, because before there was no forum really to discuss the you could maybe discuss at a, a ray party or something like that but and i mean that's why record shops were and i i guess you know continue to be so important because it is it is like a meeting spot a hub for 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 like-minded you know music obsessives mm, yeah I mean, I mean, it was only, I think it was roughly a year after that um, sort of formative uh, Love Parade experience in 93, you, you put out a record 202 BPM, um, <laughs> which is p- probably one of the most brutal pieces of, uh, of techno I've heard. Um, was, it, was it built to play at any of the raves you, you were attending? Actually, that uh, record, I recorded it um, at a friend's house. Um, in 92 and at that time it was just about you know having fun and and, uh i had this little drum machine and and he had got lend of a a a roland 303 and i also had some other small synth that we actually managed to connect and get them all to run at the same time and then we just recorded a bunch of tracks onto a cassette tape. And I, I didn't think they were going to end up anywhere, but he started to send them, you know, to different labels. And at that time, you had to send cassette copies, you know, in an envelope. So we actually got a response from a few labels. They would maybe send us a sticker saying thanks, but no thanks. But then we had this label in, um, in the U.S., called Drop Bass Network, and he loved the stuff. So that was it. And in, in the kind of, I think it was in 1996, you started a label uh, with Thomas Crom, uh, DK, and you also started a, a blank. So tell me about those two labels and, and how they kind of, they, they got kicked off. Yeah, just to try and recall the timeline here a little bit. There was so much things happening at the time when I started working in in the Plant Rhythm record shop, because we also got in contact with um, Prime Prime Distribution, with, which was a big distributor here in, in the UK for for techno music, and uh, they started to ask us for for music. So we just tried to find different styles of techno sort of and try and start new labels and new projects and try to see what worked best and um, they would say ah oh, this record is good that record not so much more of this style less of this and we tried to adapt to that so i started the uh, DK with Thomas Chrome, which is actually Dahlbeck and Chrome Records. 
actually Thomas uh, did a couple of releases, but then I sort of took over the label um, and run it by myself. And um, Blank was also a label that I started by myself, which just had these like handwritten center labels and uh, sort of yeah quick studio experiments that I sent I just sent that tapes down to England and they they released it and I mean it was only a couple of years difference between you know uh, the 202 BPM track and sort of you you experimenting or you know really pioneering like a super headsy minimal deep house sound so I guess were you trying all sorts of things in the studio at this time well, the the two hundred two BPM track, I think we did it summer of ninety two or something like that. So at that time, I I still didn't know that we were gonna start a studio. But at ninety three, ninety four, it was quite obvious that we were gonna be able to do some really good stuff that actually people outside of, you know, our crew and out of Sweden was actually gonna enjoy it which was really a bizarre feeling that someone you know would actually buy this record so I think fairly quick the the um, the awareness of the quality increased that you know we have to actually show that we can do something here that uh, is, you know, on par with all the other stuff, you know. So, and for this, we had a lot of discussions with Carrie. Actually, he 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 already had a, a lot of experience in in a big studio environment. He knew the big mixer consoles and effect units and. So uh, we tried to 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 just see in all the the information we could in order to do as good techno as possible. I mean, there was also a bit of a jazz phase in terms of your own listening experiences and, and that seeped into your productions as well. And I guess that was more around the mid-90s, wasn't it? Yeah, because later in uh, 96, 97, I guess, when um, I kind of got fed up with techno for a while and um, that's where Svek came into to my life and, and that really opened up a whole new world of, you know, doing music which was actually more like music and not just uh, a, a machine uh, or a drum machine that was stuck, you know, in a loop sort of, you know. So that's also when I started to experiment with um, real harmonies and scales and and chord progression and and uh, more sort of the, the musical side of them. You work with uh, you know this percussionist and a trumpeter and and stuff like that in this in this period. Was that musically fulfilling for you in a in a way that that techno wasn't? I guess it became quite clear already after a few years in the studio that with all these drum machines and synthesizers we had already sort of perfected our 
tech, our style of doing techno music. So it felt already like you were stuck in a in a groove, you know, or, or had to move on to a different uh, challenge. And that's that's uh, when I started to try to experiment with uh, real musicians and uh, try to bring in, you know, different real instruments like the the chaos 10 inch for example we had to do it live because there was no computers and also later on i i bought a quite expensive sampler that could actually sample longer bits of uh, sounds so i could actually bring in some musician or or actually play myself something and work with those sounds in a, in a different way that that um, was possible just before in the early 90s there was only a few samplers on the market for you know uh, let's say under 1500 euros that that could do more than let's say 20 seconds of audio so it was very limited at that time and the newer samplers that came later on towards the later half of the 90s could do maybe a couple of minutes even so that was a big difference also in in the possibilities of using real instruments and stuff and there was a tune uh real jazz that that um you released uh around that period that was sampled by the chemical brothers and you, you weren't uh too pleased about that tell me sort of what happened and how you, how you reacted? Well, I think it was uh, Tiga who uh, played me this uh, new single from the Chemical Brothers and he told me that they sampled the real jazz. And uh, so actually, for a while I tried to look into the possibilities of some sort of... Uh, uh, compensation with my publisher at the time but uh, didn't really work out well so but just a few I think months later or a year later there was another group from the US on uh, Strictly Rhythm I think who released yet another song with with the, the real jazz loop just stuck underneath you know couple of extra elements you know so then I got a bit pissed off and uh, took their track and looped it and uh, did a new track that was actually released then on um, the DK label again and this time it was release number seven and that actually became a, a project called DK7 together with another guy called uh, Marco Sullivan, who was doing vocals for this track. And did you know if like, the, if Chemical Brothers ever had a response to your response? Did you ever hear from them again after you put that, after you put that record out? Well, I'm not mad at them, uh, but I think that it was an interesting lesson just to see how far you can go, because as I looked at it, I didn't really see myself as, um, um, you know, the, the track is not that original, but they were coming sort of 
from the underground scene and and uh, maybe i was hoping for that they would you know pay something back to the to the sort of underground scene by at least acknowledge that they they took the sample but um but this is how music works i guess you know there's a lot of people who never got paid so it is the the kind of the age-old debate about sampling in electronic music and for sure no one really seems quite sure where to draw the line even now i mean we've spoken about some of your collaborations already um but there's a couple of others i i wanted to touch on um you you put out a record uh with alexi delano in, in 99 and you mentioned that you, you've known him for quite a while um you've got another album on the way this year is that right yeah, we've been working for, I don't know, three, four years on and off with some new material. We have this pseudonym called um, ADJD. So hopefully we can put this out also maybe at the beginning of next year or so. And you've, you've um, put out music with, uh, with your cousin, uh, John. Um, that kind of started around 2003 and... You, you mentioned in a previous interview that was also the time you kind of packed away the the analog gear and and started using a laptop. Yeah, that was um, that was also an interesting time because just in the beginning of two thousand, I um, started to do music only with a computer because the the computers started to get really powerful and you could actually do a lot with them. So. Me and my cousin, who was actually quite young at the time then, we had this sort of uh, study group, you know, trying different plugins and different techniques and styles of writing and uh, really just going through all the capabilities of the of the of the computer. So all the yeah all the analog outboard gear uh, was locked up in a storage sort of, and um, for a few years I was only working the computer and doing music in that way, and then sooner or later I, I got fed up with that also. So was it a case of when you revived the Persuader alias that that was when you you kind of dusted off that equipment, or had you been bringing out? or sort of incorporating, reincorporating um, hardware into your setup before then? Well, I, I started to try and record different um, machines uh, four or five years ago, but it was still quite difficult to get them to work with a modern computer, which is really weird because, you know, we're in modern times and, and so on, but... All these studio standards, like MIDI, for example, which is more than 30 years now, I think, is still so dominant that many studios still rely on this old technology. But now there's so many new interesting companies doing new inven inventions in the, in the studio um, field that you can really mix anything with anything um in the, in the in the studio and uh there's really you know nothing that is a mystery anymore because of the internet you can 
you can go on the internet and find information on on any weird little gizmo that you can find in the flea market. So that's both the good and the bad with <laughs> with the modern technology. Do you feel that um, has invigorated you as a as a producer? It definitely made it easier to record the Persuader album uh, because at that time I was still using the Atari, which was just a, a small game computer uh, with a small monochronic uh, TV screen. And uh, we had to record everything on, on that tapes. And uh, once you recorded it and closed the studio, someone else maybe went in right after and changed all the settings. So if you were unhappy with something in the track, you had to sort of build everything from scratch again to find the samples, the settings, the the effects units had to be restored and all this stuff. And nowadays, my, uh, my, uh, my way of writing music is that I kind of use that old way of creating music, but I can record every segment as an individual track in the computer and then sort of mold everything together, which makes it much easier. I mean, you've said um, before that you see yourself as a, as a producer and, and not a DJ, and it's I guess it's always strange that people continue to get those two uh, disciplines mixed up um, so regularly. Do, do you find that you're still getting you know, book to DJ regularly. I, I notice often when you do a DJ set, it's you are just playing your own productions as a kind of showcase of your of your sound. Yeah, it started, uh, I think, 10 years ago. I, I realized that I should maybe just stick to playing my own music um, because there are so many DJs already that play all kinds of styles and all kinds of records, but... There's only one Jesper Dahlbeck, you know, who can play my own stuff and 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 the way I want it. And, and that I, approach has worked worked for you. Yeah, it's worked really well. I have a quite big catalog, luckily, now that I can choose from. <laughs> and do you find that you you enjoy DJing uh, more since you've decided to go down that route? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a fantastic feeling to be able to play for a couple of hours only your own music or music that you wrote with other people or remixes that you've done for other people and so on. Uh, it's kind of like a, an ultimate ego trip to do that, actually. Yeah, You've had some issues with tinnitus down the years. Has that um, affected you much in terms of what you've been able to do performance-wise or in the studio? And Are you, is, are you managing it okay now? There was a period um, in the beginning of 2000 that, I started to get problems with my ears. And for a while, I was actually worried that it was tinnitus. And I went to um, an, an ear specialist and she checked them and they were actually quite okay. So I, I actually got these uh, special plugs, uh, the molded ones. And then as soon as I got them, I actually used them for I think almost a year. Every time I went out through the door, I put them in my ears. And um, 
also started maybe to live a bit healthier. And that sort of made the, this tinnitus thing go away, actually. So since then, I actually use my plugs uh, whenever I can. If it's a noisy environment, I try to use my earplugs. It's a very good advice. And I wanted to ask you about uh, Tiga, who's someone you've um, sort of been involved with for, for quite a while. How did you first cross paths with, with him and, and get involved with Turbo? Yeah, that's actually also a funny story because he called me once when I was in the studio and um, probably around 96, I think, and he wanted to uh, license one track from my label blank and i guess he didn't really know what sort of guy i was so he tried to impress me by talking about his car and i was totally uninterested by cars so it was kind of an awkward uh, talk but then we actually realized that both of us had been to the lab parade in both 93 and 94 i think and when I went through my pictures from the Lab Parade, I actually realized that I have an, a photo where I think you can actually see his cap from the distance. So there we were on the same spot almost a few years earlier. And, and then we became friends, actually. You know, it's in 2015, what's... Uh, Stockholm's party scene like are you in, are you invested in it in, in any way I think that um, this sort of club scene in Stockholm has never been so good actually as it is now there's a lot of DJs obviously and, and a lot of uh, also producers a lot of promoters doing different parties and uh it's actually uh, kind of like a dream come true in a way, but it's a bit too late for me, perhaps. But in the 90s, we were really glad if someone made it up to Stockholm at that time. Um, but now it's actually a, a quite vibrant scene. And it seems like the, the label you most focus on these days is Templar. Tell me what your plans are. Templar is um, yet another label that I opened with no real plan and I'm just gonna see where it ends up and now we do the album which uh, were preceded by these three first 12 inches with the persuader stuff and uh, then we'll see what happens I have some new material and I, I really look forward to releasing it over this year so uh, more persuader records or will you be be doing it under under different names i think there's gonna be at least a couple of more persuader records i have um, also some plans to revive another project called the bromwich dub which i did with um, another guy called sean lee hutta and that was also on on Svec back in the days so you're back in the studio with him? Yeah, we've also been working on and off uh, the past years. We have a lot of unreleased material, actually, that uh, I want to get out now before I quit. <laughs> so another chapter open, I guess. For sure. <laughs> 